Sometimes I look at my niece and nephews or, you know, even my friends' kids, and I'm just so jealous of them. Whether it be because they are laughing, crying, falling, dancing, joking, imagining, singing, they do it as if no one is watching. And they actually do it no matter what others think of them. Research shows that early adolescence, you know, around the age of eight, is when we start to notice and internalize social norms. And then we become self-conscious. It's when we begin to remember how things make us feel, and then we avoid things that make us feel awkward. Welcome to episode 179 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown speaker, author, and networking coach. And today I am joined by Hannah Pryor, a two-time TEDx speaker and author of the new book, Good Awkward, How to Embrace the Embarrassing and Celebrate the Cringe to Become the Bravest You. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. You know, you'd think the older we get, the more experienced we are, that our need to fit into social norms would decrease. But my guest today says that studies show the exact opposite, that the more experienced and confident we are, the more we try to fit into social norms causing our ability to take risks, both big and small, to collapse. Henna has spent years observing and experiencing awkwardness with a deep curiosity, and what she learned is that most of the superstars we respect in the business world have one major thing in common that doesn't get nearly enough airtime. That the key to thriving is learning to lean into the embarrassing and celebrate the cringe. Well... (laughs) I can't wait to learn how to do that. So, Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to, to teach you how to do that. You know, I think it would be great if we started off by defining what awkward is. Yeah, I think that's a great way to start. So awkwardness has many definitions. If you pick up, you know, any of the 10 major dictionaries, you're going to get at least three to four definitions per dictionary. But in the context of our conversation today, when we are talking about awkwardness, we're talking about the emotion. Of awkwardness. And the definition I use is awkwardness is an emotion we feel when the person that we believe ourselves to be, our true self, is momentarily at odds with the person who is on display. So, in other words, who we are for a moment feels at odds. There's a gap with who they see. And when that happens, we feel an emotion called awkwardness. Okay. I'm going to assume, maybe, that a lot of our behaviors, especially the ones around fitting in with other people, they come from our caveman brain. When we were cavemen, everything was about being accepted into the group, being accepted in amongst your people. And if you weren't, if you were ostracized and put outside of that group, I mean, it's essentially akin to to death yeah. at that point. You needed a group of people to to embrace you and have you fit in. And I'm assuming that is, you know, 
creating the pathway for a lot of the ways we feel now. Yeah, you're exactly right. So awkwardness is an emotion of discomfort. You know, sometimes people will say, what's the difference between just being uncomfortable and feeling awkward? Well, there's lots of ways we can feel uncomfortable. We can be afraid. We can be anxious. Awkwardness in particular is unique because it is a social emotion. So Julia, as you started to say, it is not something we typically feel by ourselves. If I'm in my office right now and a song comes on and I just am blasting yeah. the song lyric and I'm saying the song lyric all wrong, I am just, you know, failing miserably, but no one is there to hear me. I might have other emotions about it, but awkwardness is not typically one of them. Awkwardness is something we feel in social settings when someone else or we're publicly in a place where we're like, oh, I didn't expect that. And so you are exactly right. It is very uh, in line with and because of our need for social acceptance. Our brains still have a very real and very hardwired need to belong. And so we are constantly doing this scan because our human brains, we want to fit in. We want to cooperate. And so whether we mean to or not, our brains are consciously and subconsciously doing this whisper quiet scan for the approval of others, which is where this emotion comes from. And I'm going to assume it's just getting worse. It's just getting worse because of social media, because of, you know, likes and hearts and comments, like it, our need for that to not feel awkward, not, not just not feel awkward, but to feel accepted and liked and loved and whatever no matter how superficial it is, is driving a lot of this. Yeah. So why, why a conversation on awkwardness? Why now? So you've hit, one of, right. you've hit one of them, which is we live in an increasingly fishbowl-esque world where it feels like our validation is coming from these likes and clicks and whatnot. So that, that's part of it. But there's actually a second part of it, too. There is a weakening of our social musculature that's happening just across the country because of the way our society has optimized for smoothness. So a couple things happening. In the social media spheres, we don't have to re react or respond to those types of conversations in real time. They're not real time. They're asynchronous, meaning somebody can comment or chat and we can get back to them later if we really want to. We don't have right. that real time social muscle flex. And also, just anecdotally, there has been a diminishment of public spaces. We used to, you know, meet up in parks and libraries and things more often as a, as a society of humans. We just generally don't have as many of those spaces anymore. People don't go to church as much anymore. You know, we just don't have those same opportunities. And again, increasingly because of society, we don't have to flex our social muscles on a daily basis at all if we don't want to. So let's just say, Julie, today, if I don't want to talk to anybody, I can order my dinner on DoorDash. I can text yeah. everybody that I need to get in touch with. I don't have to have a conversation or look a person in the eye if I don't want to. And because no. of that, that muscle is weakening. We don't have any opportunities to practice. So when we do get to a conversation, let alone a tough conversation that could be awkward, those muscles are much weaker than they used to be. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way because I think when we think about social awkwardness and we think about our lack of social interaction, we tend to blame it, not blame it, we tend to put it on Gen Z yeah. because they're the ones who were predominantly schooled. The academic schooling was done via Zoom because of the pandemic. 
So I think they take a brunt of this. Like we're not, they're not socially connected. They don't know how to do face-to-face interactions. But you've just explained how it's, now it's every generation. It is 100% unfairly put on Gen Z. I will give you an example. And my husband, I love him dearly, but I'm going to call him out right now. The example I've been telling lately is, we were ordering dinner the other day. We were, you know, on, we were trying to order our favorite tacos on DoorDash and the DoorDash app was glitching. It wasn't working correctly. So I said, you know, babe, can you call to, to order our tacos? And he goes, I don't want to call. Let's just get pizza instead. And I'm thinking, I want a taco. Like my husband is a 43, 44-year-old man, right? So it's, no, yeah. it's not just Gen Z. We have gotten away from opportunities yeah. to interact. And, you know, I, I, I will... You know, I'm going to put a little fire under your listeners right now. If you have ever been in the grocery store line and taken out your phone just to avoid eye contact or chit chat with someone, this is you. If you've ever been on an elevator and hammered the elevator door button shut so you didn't have to have small talk, this is you. If you wear headphones in a coffee shop on a subway so you don't have to even look at anyone, this Mm -hmm. is you. Our muscles are weakening and we are playing a part in that as every generation right now. Yeah, I'm the exact opposite of everything you just described. Yeah. I'm the person who's like, hey, what'd you do? Where'd you get that hat is pretty. Right. Like, I'm um, immediately talking to everybody. Part of the reason is because I just find humans fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, I find the experience fascinating. I know everybody has a ridiculous story to tell or something that's happened to them. And I, even if it's like just a moment of interaction with them, I want a little piece of what they have to offer. And I maybe I don't get as embarrassed as other people or as quickly embarrassed as other people. It could be. I mean, there's certainly there's 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 two comments I'd have there. It's one is there's two components to this. There's one of, you know, a little bit of our natural wiring. But that is, according to research, maybe 50 percent. The second part of this, which we can talk about more in detail, is there's an element of conditioning. There's an element of doing the darn thing. And I would argue, Julie, and you and I are wired similarly. You know, this this is a book about awkwardness, but it is not a book just for introverts. I am an extrovert. I'm a 100% extrovert. But what you're describing is something that I really believe to be true in my own career. You know, there's that expression, luck is preparation meets opportunity. I, yeah. I, I like you, even if it's slightly awkward, will have that hello, that dialogue and guess what? That's where opportunity lives in meeting new people and putting yourself in different situations. So, yeah, I feel like I've been very lucky the last yeah. two years. But hey, guess what? Half of that equation is opportunity and our social musculature declining is making those opportunities harder and harder to come by. Yeah. I mean, your book, I love some of the examples you had in your book and I've listened to your TED Talks and you have this story in your TED Talk about how you had a boss who used to call you Helen and you never corrected them because you thought it would be awkward to correct them when you have every right to be called the right name. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also in your book talk about how our our sort of societally, culturally, we love Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> because she is so awkward. Like when she won the Oscar, she tripped going up the stairs. It's like everybody's worst nightmare and she did it. And then she joked about it a couple years later that um that Meryl Streep tripped her. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um and so I think your book is all about sort of changing our mindset around awkwardness. And you say it's a superpower. So I think that's two questions. How is it a superpower? And if we can recognize that perhaps it's a superpower, how do we embrace it? Yeah. So I'll start with the first part of that. You know, j- just to to answer the, is it about mindset? 100%. It's, it's twofold. It's 
It's about mindset and awareness about what do we believe about this emotion. And then the second part is sort of the action steps, the conditioning component. When it comes to this emotion, the one thing I want to start with is this idea that you don't get to avoid awkwardness. Whoever the proverbial you is, you listening, you, I'm talking to you right now, you don't get to avoid it because to avoid awkwardness implies that you've somehow figured out how to avoid all uncertainty in your life. And if you have figured that out, call your girl up and give her the recipe because I don't know it. Like, you know, it's not yeah. possible uh, to avoid awkwardness implies ex knowing exactly how every single person is going to react. It's, it's knowing that you'll never trip over a crack in the sidewalk in front of other people. It is impossible. So trying to eliminate it and thinking, you know what, once I get rid of this, I'll feel more confident or I'll take more risk. Forget that. Put that to the side because that's not happening. In fact, mm -hmm. there are actually benefits to this emotion. There are upsides to this emotion. So what I want to articulate very early and importantly is that sometimes people hear, okay, being awkward at work, but I don't want people to think I suck at my job. I don't want people to think I'm, I'm no good at life. I don't want them to think I'm clumsy. I'm weak, right? Even in personal uh, interactions. But awkwardness is not the same as ineptitude. Right. I'm not mm. I'm not suggesting that you come into meetings unprepared and stumbling over your words because you should know better. What I am suggesting is that when you've done a good job, you're generally competent, you're generally prepared and that you have a moment where you say someone's name wrong or that you, you know, flub up the, the section of your work presentation, that if you are generally someone who is competent and does good work, that that will not hurt you the way you think it does. In fact, it humanizes you. It's something called the pratfall effect. It knocks you off this pedestal that people sometimes put you on when you have no flaws and seem so perfect, it actually makes you warmer and more likable. So there are so many upsides to us taking this emotion and reimagining our relationship with it and how it might serve us to lean into it a little bit more. I always feel like when you're a professional speaker, I'm a professional speaker, we tend to also watch a lot of other professional yeah. speakers and for me, when I see a speaker who you know that there's no emotion behind it, they're just they've just memorized it. They're not there's nothing ad lib. There's nothing ad hoc. That to me, I don't connect with those people as much as people who like me in the middle of a presentation where I flip aside and I go, oh, shit, I didn't know that slide was the next <laughs> one. Hold on. Let me go back. And, right. You know, kind of thing. That does humanize you. It does connect you with the other person because we all, I don't know. I mean, it's not that we want other people to fail. We just want to, you know, uh, have something that connects us. And I think all of our abilities to not be perfect are something that connects us. Yeah. And I think, again, this is the challenge of modern society because, you know, social media and the optics that we're able to curate online is that this person you know, doesn't have clutter in their house. They don't have a pore on their face. They're all filtered out, right? We, we can put forth these images of ourselves. But the truth is, and the research corroborates the idea that the, the speakers or the leaders or the people we look up to aren't typically the ones that are a thousand steps ahead and have perfection figured out. It's the ones that are a couple of steps ahead. Yeah. Right. Just a little yeah. bit ahead of us, still making mistakes along the way, the ones that the people we perceive as most confident, ironically, don't avoid awkwardness. They actually lean into it harder and their comeback rate is faster. When we look at someone who's confident, they're the person who can burp loudly in the middle of the room and go, oh my gosh, that was awkward, right? And just own that moment. 
so that we can all relax, all of our shoulders drop, and we can move on. That person actually wins the confidence award over the person that pretends like it never happened because they're able to take that humanity and own it, come back from it, move on. So do you suggest that people try to do awkward things to see how it feels or to see what the reaction is? Yeah. So, so you know, what we're, what we're not looking for is falsified moments of awkwardness. I think that's sort of counterintuitive. You know, part of the, the discussion in the book is we talk a lot in this modern day about authenticity. That's like a big buzzword yeah. right now. And what I think about the, the awkward conversation as is what is one of these obstacles to authenticity? And it's the inability to withstand awkward moments is one of those obstacles. But what I don't want is for people to start performing in either direction. I don't want them to perform by pretending someone right. they're not in order to avoid awkwardness. I also don't want them to perform awkwardness. But where there is opportunity is to put yourself in situations where that's more likely to occur. So in the context mm -hmm. of what we talked about earlier, the next time you're in the grocery store line, I'm going to challenge your listeners to do this. The next time you're in a grocery store line, just keep your phone in your pocket and see yeah. if you can make eye contact with someone and maybe just say good morning or say hello. Right. The next time you're on a subway or in a, on a train or in a you know, coffee shop, maybe just for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, leave the headphones out and just just yeah. see. Right. I'm not saying go out of your way to say something uncomfortable, but create moments where you might invite a social happenstance moment that otherwise is engineered away. You know, call your restaurant and order your dinner tomorrow. Guess what? They still yeah. they, they still they still allow that. <laughs> right. It's only the phone. Right. You know, it's so funny. I was thinking the other day, um, I read a lot of books, business books, and also guilty pleasure books. And yeah. I was I was reading, I was laying in bed the other day. I, was, I happened to be reading on my Kindle, which I, I like a hardcover book better, but this particular one was on my Kindle. Yeah. And it reminded me of when I was young and I had first moved to Boston and I would take the green line to work every day. And this was before Kindles. It was before iPhones. You know, people were so, I had a Blackberry. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I used to love my train ride in the morning because I would see what everybody was reading because everybody had a hardcover or a paperback. Mm -hmm. And it was my excuse to say to a person, is that book any good? Right. And then that person would immediately be like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, let me like, or they'd say, you know what? It's really hard to get into, but it's starting to pick up. And it would cause this really natural conversation. Yeah. And I think about that. And I don't take the train anymore because I live in the suburbs. But mm -hmm. even if I did, that's gone because everybody's yeah. reading on their phone. Or if they have a Kindle, they're reading on their Kindle and you can't see what it is. And so when somebody asks me a question, so say I wear kind of interesting clothing. And when somebody says, oh, where did you get that? Or I like your shirt. I'll, I'll be like, oh, my God. Yes. Let me tell you yeah. where I got it. And yeah. I stand the conversation. Because I'm really into just these sort of single serving conversations. They don't have to go anywhere. But if you somebody said, oh, I like your shirt. And I would send, okay, thanks. That, that's not, for me, that's not thanking them enough for, for putting themselves out there and asking me or sure. telling me comment. And, and part of withstanding awkwardness is understanding that that may be the reaction that you get from some people. So what are we celebrating? Yeah. Are we celebrating, oh, this person like loved talking to me? No, actually, you know, one of the terms I use in the book is crossing the cringe chasm. If you do that, if you say to someone, hey, I really love your shirt, and that's an edge for you, right, to kind of speak up and speak out. And they're like, oh, thanks. You know what? 
celebrate your damn self. You said the thing. It doesn't, you can't control other people's reactions, but you said the thing. You did a mental rep, right? A social rep. The same way in the gym, that's a rep. You put in a rep and that serves you no matter how that other person reacted. And the truth of the matter is there, you know, there are some situations that are easier than others. I'm, I'm from Philly Metro. It is very easy when you are walking in the grocery store and someone's got a hat on to go, go birds, right? Like that is like our, yeah. you know, it, it's basically hello, right? But how many other times in previous lives have we had just other reasons to do that that we've gotten yeah. away from? And it doesn't have to be big Herculean stuff. It could be as simple as mm-hmm. great bag or, you know, whatever. But these little micro yeah. reps, these, these social repetitions are what we need in order to withstand the networking event, the salary negotiation. You know, if we are not putting in the reps in small stakes moments, we will not have the courage to tolerate the big stakes moments. Yeah. And I think as we look at society in general, when we look at, I love that term. I hadn't heard of it before, the social muscular flex. When we look back on the Surgeon General's loneliness epidemic report, the idea that us just embracing the cringe a little bit can do so much for our basic human connection. Yeah. I always say in my speeches that the extra mile is never crowded because nobody goes even the extra inch. And like these little moments of just like, I'm going to put myself out there. It might be awkward. I might be awkward, but we need more social connection. We need more humans talking to each other. Um. I think it could do a lot for the world. Yeah, it's funny. I was I was thinking that as you were talking earlier about the connection between this and the loneliness epidemic, you know, the same way, and I'm sure in the spheres you speak on, you, you think about this too, like corporate culture isn't something that leadership can just throw down like a blanket and be like, everybody, corporate culture is this now? No, we, we know, you and I, that culture is created between a conversation, between two people slowly over time, right? Same thing with community. The lonely, the loneliness epidemic isn't going to get solved by an app or a wave of the wand. It's one conversation at a time. And so we as individuals, and I hope this is empowering to someone listening, you slowly can be the domino that helps with the loneliness epidemic. It just involves you, yeah. again, keeping your phone in your bag. I was at a, I, I'm going to share a really kind of quick story. I was on the airport shuttle the other day. I, I live um, a little bit from the airport. So I park at the garage and then take the shuttle over. I was on the airport shuttle and these, it was a full shuttle. These people, one, one gentleman sitting next to me in a cross, just they struck up conversation, which I loved. Nobody was on their phone. It was actually shocking. Not a single person was on their phone. They struck up conversation. It turns out they, he grew up in the same town that this other couple currently lived in. And he, you know, they, they were, oh, I, I know that street. I lived on that street. My dentist was on that street. And she goes, who was your dentist? I was a hygienist at that dentist. Long story short, this ended with, your tom. I remember you had a gap in your teeth. I used to be in your mouth. I kid you not. I, and everyone on the shuttle is just giggling, right? Yeah. It, it truly was a core memory moment for me because had everyone yeah. been on their phone, that moment of just sheer yeah. joy would never have occurred. And it was just yeah. to me such a reminder of why I'm so passionate about this work. Like, Put in the little micro rep. You don't know where it will lead. And there's so much, so much upside, just so much. You know, it's funny. And I hate to blame everything on the phone because it's a bigger social conversation. Anything that can numb us. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge, huge part of our lack of connection. 
Sure. And <clears throat> my husband and I have a rule, whether we're at home or whether we're out to, out for dinner at a restaurant, we don't bring our phones. Yeah. Um, and we don't have children, so this is a little bit easier for us because we don't have to check in on children or make sure that we have a phone for children um, to call babysitters or anything like that. Sure, sure. But it came as a byproduct of looking around restaurants and realizing no one was talking to each other. Sure. And I was like, why are you here? Mm -hmm. Why are you sitting in this beautiful restaurant? Yeah. You know, and not looking at each other and not having a conversation. So we have a no phone rule. And it's funny because we just went on vacation with friends. Um, a, we went to a couple's resort in, in the Caribbean. <clears throat> we went out to dinner every night and we don't bring our phones. Yeah. And towards like the second day, they were like, okay, no phones at the table. Like even they were doing it, even though they I have kids, like, like no phones at the table. Like, yeah, because it is such a distraction. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. I think the phones are per perhaps one of the most pervasive, awkward avoidance tactics right now, but it can be anything, right? Yeah. I mentioned like hammering the elevator button shut or headphones or yeah. alcohol or drugs, anything that can numb us away from the discomfort that comes with, I don't know how this interaction will go. I don't know how to react or how to act right now. Yeah. That is the opportunity. I know I'm, what I'm asking is not easy. It is very easy for me. Yeah. Let, let, me let me not be on a pedestal here. It is e very easy for me to pull out my phone instead of yeah. forcing myself to keep it in my bag on an elevator, in line, on a shuttle. It is my instinct yeah. is to pull it out. So, you know, I don't share this as some guru who has this perfect. I share this as I'm on this journey with you because I understand. And especially, you know, I it's not just for adults. It's for kids, too. I'm, I'm trying to teach my kids. I need you to go to the counter and tell them that your order was incorrect. I need you to be right. able to say these things without going, Mom, I don't want to ring the doorbell. We're just supposed yeah. to text. We're supposed to send a text that says we're here from the driveway. And I'm like, well, that may be what we're supposed to do. But to me, there's a rep that needs to occur here. And I'd like you to ring the doorbell. Like, does it earn favor from my 13-year-old daughter? Not so much. She doesn't love me for it. But I believe strongly that in an increasingly technological world, I am willing to withstand a little bit of her disgust over mom making her flex this social muscle over what I believe will be the long-term benefit of doing it. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to a phrase you said, when it comes to networking. Mm -hmm. People, because I see people going into networking events and immediately getting on their phone because they don't know anybody in the room and they feel yeah. awkward. And that is a crutch for them. But you said, I don't know how this conversation will go. And I think that is the crux of a lot of people's anxieties around going into networking events and talking to people they don't know. I don't know where this conversation is going to go. Yeah. And you talked about it earlier. You said it's, being prepared for things, be, being prepared to have conversations, to know what you're going to say. And I think that can take some of the awkwardness away, but you cannot control how other people respond to your questions or, you know, to you as a person. So I think being able to say, I don't know how this conversation is going to go. I don't know if this person's going to like me. I don't know if they're going to give one word answers and just be prepared for whatever may happen in that conversation. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Julie, fully. And I would say, you know, when it comes to networking in particular, I recommend sort of three things happen in advance. One is recalibrate your expectations. 
You might go in with the best talk tracks. You might go in with the greatest story, the greatest elevator pitch, and everyone might be in a mood that day. And you can't control that. Maybe the company announced some news, which has half the people feeling away. You know, you can't control that. So recalibrate your expectations. Number two, rework your goals of that networking event. If your goal is people are going to like me and I'm going to have this type of thing, then you're going to go in only looking for that. But if your goal is, you know, I'm going to meet two new people today. And it's not really about how they perceive me or whatever. That's my goal. And if I do that, I'm going to be proud of myself and I'm going to treat myself to whatever later today. Right. And number three is, and you mentioned this, is be prepared, not just for what you're planning to say professionally, but I encourage people to have some little talk track for those that feel super uncomfortable and awkward about introducing themselves to folks. So in the book, I share a story of a, a leader named Satya and her talk track was, My sister made a bet that I wouldn't talk to two new people today, a $20 bet. So I don't like to lose. Would you be one of them? Yeah. It's like a playful, calming, relatable entry point. And she practiced saying that line in the mirror a bunch of times because she knew this was tough for her, but she had it down. She found two people that she felt like, okay, I think I can do this. That one of those two people ended up being a major partner for her on a project who she wouldn't have even met had she not practiced this ahead. So, you know, practice your elevator pitch, but also practice your entry point in admitting, hey, this is uncomfortable for me. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, it's it's funny. I When it comes to networking and the people who listen to this podcast have heard this a million times, there's nothing else in our business and the different aspects of what we do for our business that we wouldn't go into an activity without a goal, without saying, this is what I want to accomplish with this activity that I'm doing. And yet, Somehow we think that we should just wing networking and just go in without no. without a goal, without a plan, without being prepared. And that's why networking sucks so much. Yes, I 100% agree. And I think, you know, people need to redefine. And I know you believe this because I was listening to some of your other episodes. It's it's not a passive effort, right? Networking is yeah. an active, active conversation amongst humans that can be beneficial no matter what level you are, wherever you sit in the organization, in your life, in your career. But you have to do that mental pre-work and prep in order to feel good. You know, it's um, I love the the concept of self-handicapping, right? So people self-handicap, meaning they don't do the thing because if they don't prepare and if they don't do the mental pre-work and they don't research, then when they wing it and it doesn't go well, they can say, well, you know, it didn't go well, so I never have to do it again. But essentially, they've deliberately right. underprepared. So then they don't have to find out if they're actually any good. Right? Exactly. So we self-handicap yeah. and we as humans deserve better from ourselves than doing that. Yeah. I think as we wrap up, you in the book say awkwardness is our greatest Is that because we are losing it or is that because it is the key to social connection? And like, why do you think it's the greatest asset? Uh, All of the above. So, you know, a couple things. First of all, it's a signal, right? When you feel awkward, it is a signal from your modern brain that says, hey, something about this situation is making me want approval or it's making me feel unsteady. And anytime your brain gives you a signal, what a great opportunity to explore it, right? The truth is, if you have growth goals, if you're, you know, status quo Sally and you're just good where you are, status quo whoever, you're good where you are, then hey, don't worry about it. 
you don't need to worry about any of this. But if you have ambition to do something different in your life, to grow, to transform, to expand, then you will hit awkwardness at every transition point, at every inflection point. And those data points are healthy to say, hey, here's something I could stand to examine again about why does this particular situation make me feel really awkward? It's data, right? And then secondarily, that data points to a very powerful opportunity to say, hey, here's a muscle that I could stand to strengthen. You know, I, I believe very strongly that social muscle is like physical muscle, but not just that it requires strengthening. Also with physical muscle, we don't just strengthen the ones that are already strong. Like if mm. I have strong legs because I run and I only continue to strengthen my legs, my shoulders are not doing oh, yeah. any better than they were yesterday. So when it relates to awkwardness and when it relates to wanting to take more chances, more risks, can you use that signal, that signpost to say, here's a muscle that is currently weak because you are going to see the greatest gains if you work on a muscle that is currently weak rather than ones yeah. that's strong. So use that as a signal to serve your next level of growth. And I think there's also a lesson here too, maybe especially for those of us on the, not me, I'm extroverted, but who are on mm -hmm. the introverted side of the ambivert spectrum that when you are working a muscle, there is need for recovery and rest. Yeah, sure. The only way you're going to continue to be as effective as you can when you are working that muscle. I, I'm glad you brought that up 100%. And also not to be afraid to make downward adjustments. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to flex some of this social muscle and you try something and you're like, it really, it took it out of me, it didn't feel that good, that's okay. Yeah. Maybe next time, one step back, two steps back, right? Can you make a little yeah. little downward adjustment to something that feels more palatable and slowly work your way up? No one is grading you for your attempts, but we are applauding yeah. you for attempting, right? Like that, that's the new celebration is you tried. You tried. Yeah. The outcome is irrelevant to me. You tried something. And if this was too much, downward adjustments, no one is faulting you for it. And one more thing, in your TED Talk, you referenced a 2019 KPMG study about risk-taking and how it's mm -hmm. easier to take risks in a group than take them alone. So maybe there's something there about maybe somebody can help you with these conversations. Maybe you can have a wing mm -hmm. person to help you in these situations. I have a friend in the industry who said, I've always, I've always love having Julie go to events with me because she would always say the first, you know, she would always, yeah. in, you know, initiate the first conversation and, and I yeah. would just come in. She said, I feel bad for people who don't have a Julie. And so it's like, I think there's something there about if you're afraid to do it alone, find your person who you can talk to somebody on the train with or, you know, at the grocery store with. Um, if, if that is indeed true, that it's easier to take risks as a group. hundred percent. I mean, everyone's at different places in this journey, right? It's, it's, good to evaluate and take stock of where am I on this journey? And I 100% agree. I think, you know, even in the context of underrepresented, marginalized folks, sometimes it can feel more challenging systemically to speak up yes. in the room. It can feel more awkward to say, hey, I don't agree with this. So perhaps, you know, if I have a, am in a position of perceived power or seniority, I might look around the room and say, you know, Julie, I noticed that you're, you had a little eye flicker there. I feel like you had something to add. Do you mind sharing your thoughts yes. on this, right? Inviting people mm -hmm. into the conversation, 100%. Allyship is always going to be part of the conversation about helping others embrace their awkward moments. Yeah, looking for those social cues that we, again, 
we are losing our ability to notice them more and more because we aren't, as you say, not flexing that social muscle. Um, I think that's really important. You have said that. Um, Hannah Pryor is the author of Good Awkward, How to Embrace the Embarrassing and Celebrate the Cringe to Become the Bravest You. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. This was a blast. Thank you for having me. My favorite thing that Hannah said in our conversation was, awkwardness is not the same as ineptitude. And the reason why I love this is because in general, when we are trying to master new things, we begin by being awkward at them. We aren't inept. We aren't incapable. We just need to create the muscle memory around the activity. We need to slowly get better at that activity. Awkwardness is not an aptitude. And this was evident when she said that most of the people we look up to or aspire to be like aren't a thousand steps ahead of us. They're just a few steps ahead of us. They're just a little better at the thing than we are. She also mentioned that we can't control how people react to us Especially, you know, this is true in networking conversations, but we can certainly control how prepared we are. We can control how we feel about ourselves and about our effort. So celebrate that you've begun to cross the cringe chasm, as she calls it. You know, every time you do that, celebrate that little effort that you did, even if you don't get the perfect response from your effort. Remember, awkwardness humanizes us. It connects us. It just might be your superpower. Who knows? Now, on to the drink of the week, which I picked because I think it has an awkward name. That's literally the only reason why I picked it. It's the Harvey Wallbanger, which the exact origin of the name is unclear, but it is believed to have been popularized in the 1950s and 1960s. The most common story behind the name is that it was named after a California surfer named Harvey, who frequently banged against walls while drinking this cocktail. I don't know. That seems like a stretch. But anyways, the cocktail mixology itself is credited to three-time world champion mixologists Donato, Duke, and Tony of Hartford, Connecticut, where he ran the bartending school of mixology and worked as a cocktail consultant. Antony, I don't don't know, is this how you pronounce this? Again, awkward, A-N-T-O-N-E. Antony, Antony, Antony is also credited with, (laughs) is also credited with Freddie Fudpucker. This is a cocktail, Freddie Fudpucker, which swaps the vodka in the Harvey Wallbanger drink for tequila. And this drink was not nearly as popular. (laughs) Maybe because it's a little too awkward. I don't know. Here's what you're going to need for the Harvey Harvey Wallbanger. One and a quarter ounces of vodka, half an ounce of Galliano liqueur, three ounces of orange juice, and for a garnish, you're going to need an orange slice and a cherry. What you're going to do is fill um, a tall glass, like a Collins glass, with ice, and then add the vodka and orange juice and stir, and then float the Galliano on top. Garnish with that skewered orange slice and maraschino cherry. If you make it, let me know. All right, friends, that's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Also, please remember to share this podcast. When you do that, it helps it reach a larger audience. 
If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can find me at, on LinkedIn at Julie Brown BD. When you reach out, just let me know where you found me. I'm Julie Brown underscore BD on the Instagram, or you can just pop on over to my website, juliebrownbd.com. Until next week, cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works. Thank you.